CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource for education. Visit CUA.org. Good evening. I think we're live. Good evening. I hope everyone's having a good November 2nd. I hope everyone had a good Halloween. We certainly did here in our neighborhood and with our kids. And uh, welcome to another CUA uh, Practice Changing Publication webinar. And tonight, the CUA has asked us to discuss testis cancer. And uh, we will dig right in. I, uh, I'm Rob Hamilton. I'm a urologic oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And I uh, have interest in, and uh, research interests and clinical interest in testis cancer, of course, as well as prostate and kidney. And I am pleased to be joined by my colleague, Armin. Armin, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, uh, Rob. Um, happy to be here. Armin Aprikian, I'm the medical director of the Cedars Cancer Center at the McGill University Health Center and a professor in surgery at McGill and uh, have an interest in testicular cancer. And thank you for participating this evening. And uh, just uh, one slide of housekeeping reminder to everybody that this is um, uh, accredited pr program. So you are eligible to receive one hour of credit in uh, section one MoComp learning. So go ahead and file that as soon as you're done. These are our learning objectives for this evening. It's a lot of words. I wouldn't spend too much time on that. Instead, we'll, we'll focus on this, uh, which is uh, what we're gonna cover today. Now, uh, Armin and I met uh, leading up to this webinar. And of course, the COA has asked us to talk about practice changing, uh, truly practice changing papers. And the truth is in testis cancer, it doesn't move as fast as prostate cancer, bladder cancer, etc. So Armin and I felt it best to cover, while there's no truly practice changing papers, there are certainly some practice affirming key papers that have come out in the last two years. And we felt it best to cover a gamut of topics that may be of interest to your practice rather than just spend the whole hour on one or two uh, key practice changing papers. So we're gonna talk some early stage disease, later stage disease, some aspects of survivorship. And then if there's time at the end, we'll cover two topics, which uh, uh, Dr. Prickin and I think that may change the face of how testis cancer looks in the next sort of three to five years, that being microRNA and, and seminoma. And reminder to everyone, please submit your questions in the Q&A and do so as you're going along. We're, our plan here is to stop basically at each subtopic and, and catch Q&A and have discussion. And so please, uh, this can be very relaxed and um, you know, the, the idea is here to, to, to talk about testis cancer tonight. So, so there's, uh, feel free to, to fire away on all the questions as we go along. So we'll start with some new um, updated papers on the whole adjuvant BEP story in non-seminoma stage one. And just one slide of reminder that the non-seminoma stage one story hopefully doesn't need to be reminded, but it's always good to remind ourselves that we have three options one being surveillance, two being a retroperitoneal node dissection, and the third being BEP times one. And while yes, you can reduce the risk of relapse if you give one of these adjuvant therapies, the cancer-specific survival is exactly the same. And for that reason, the CUA guidelines are in the original one, and the one that we're about to hopefully put out in the next uh, month or two has the exact same opinion, which is that surveillance is the preferred option. And it's been this way for years. And uh, you know, you know, AUA, NCCN, EAU, they have very similar verbiage around this concept uh, because of that cancer-specific survival. But it's interesting this year, and the two papers we're going to talk about, there, there have been two papers that have come out looking at the adjuvant BEP times one in more detail. And so the first is a, a clinical trial, the 111 trial of one cycle of BEP, which I'll, as I'll show you, comes out very much in favor of BEP times one. And then another paper in JCO, the Fisher paper, looks at a, a cohort of relapses 
and calls into question a little bit the story of adjuvant BEP times one. So we'll, we'll walk through that now and then we'll, we'll pause and have some discussion. So this is the first paper, European Neurology, 2020. The so-called 111 study was presented at GUASCO as well just before it came out. And it's a study of 246 high-risk, so lymphovascular invasion, CS1B, high-risk, non-seminomonous germ cell tumors. They all received, there was a single-arm study, interestingly, they all received BEP times 1. And they chose this primary endpoint that they called malignant recurrence. So these were elevated markers or positive imaging that went on to have an RPL and D and they found viable uh, living, breathing cancer cells. Uh, then they defined the secondary endpoint, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit later, which they, they said was a benign recurrence, which is teratoma. And I do have some issue with calling teratoma a benign recurrence. The follow-up was relatively short, 49 months. And the primary endpoint, the overall conclusion of this paper was that the malignant recurrence rate at two years was 1.3%, which is very impressive. Remember, clinical stage 1B non-SEM on surveillance, about 50% are destined to relapse. So 1.3% is very impressive. These are the four malignant recurrences here. And they concluded that in fairly blanket statement saying adoption of BEP times 1 should be regarded as a standard and it can reduce the overall exposure to chemo. So a very positive paper with arguably very impressive results uh, in favor of BEP times 1. Now, some issues that, that I think are worthy of discussion that while they define this malignant relapse rate and they had found 1.3%, I think you can't ignore those teratomas. The teratomatous recurrences, they need to undergo RPLND most commonly. And, and that's not a benign intervention. So to say the relapse rate is 1.3%, I think is actually a bit um, stretching of the truth. And, and if you look at the whole relapses in the whole cohort, it's about 3.1%. Still very good, don't get me wrong. The median follow-up, while good at just over four years, doesn't tell the whole story why they had their protocol had a little bit of a gap so they they ct'd them intensely up till year two and then they they have no cts whatsoever until year five and we know from other series of uh, bep times one that there are some late relapses that we see in the in the post bep uh, period and so as much as 30 percent can relapse after three years and so we're sort of in this limbo land where they haven't had their their year three four ct until year five and so all this is by way of saying, I suspect as we follow these patients out further and when the study reports again, hopefully in two years, I bet we'll see more relapses. It won't be triple the relapses, but it certainly will be more. And I suspect it'll approach that historic sort of 5% relapse rate that we see with other series of BEP. Not to forget, 41% had a grade three, four complication, 7% had a, a grade seven, uh, at least grade seven, uh, sorry, at least grade three, four neutropenia. So 7% had, had neutropenia. And from this study, and many other studies of BEP times one, we really don't know the truly long-term toxicity. By that, I mean 15, 20-year data. We don't know the long-term toxicity of, of that population. We've got a really good sense of the acute toxicity, but not the long-term toxicity. So that, that paper in the last year and a half, very much in favor of BEP times one as an adjuvant strategy. A lot of Twitter action about that study as well in favor of, of BEP times one. Now, this paper came out just over a year, a year and a half ago, JCO, and it was a collection of 51 patients from different centers that had had adjuvant BEP times one, but then went on to relapse. And up to this point, we really didn't have this story well captured about what these patients look like after their BEP times one. And their main endpoint was either progression-free survival or overall survival, and here's what they found. First of all, the median time from the time of 
getting the chemotherapy or sorry, from the time of their diagnosis to their time of their relapse was 13 months. And that, you know, it's hard to contextualize that, but we have to remember that the majority of surveillance relapses happen about four to six months for this clinical stage 1B population. So you're now looking at a, a time to relapse that's longer, 13 months. And in fact, what's a little bit more frightening is that a third relapsed after three years and 20% relapsed after five years. So you're getting some really late relapses here in the post-BAP population. 16% were either intermediate or poor risk at relapse and 50% had, like half of them had to be treated with more aggressive chemotherapy than we would typically require to salvage either a surveillance relapse or, or to treat a de novo metastatic patient. And so you're starting to raise the question of, is there a little bit of chemo resistance that develops after you uh, trickle in one cycle of BEP and then they relapse? So 29%, fully a third experienced a second relapse. And, and what was to me a little bit hard to believe was that 18% of this cohort died. And so you can see this blue Kaplan-Meier curve over here. And it's hard to imagine that patients who started out with stage one would end up on a, on a survival curve looking like this. It's very different than normal stage one survival curves. And so you conclude by saying, and they concluded by saying that relapses after BEP1 appear maybe worse than those with de novo metastatic disease or surveillance relapses that end up with metastatic disease. And there's this higher rate of late relapse. And so we have the exciting data from the Cullen paper, BEP times one appears to really dramatically lower the relapse rate. But then you have the Fisher story, which is that if you're unlucky enough to relapse after getting BEP, maybe then you're in a bit more trouble. So why don't we uh, pause there? I'll toggle back to the screen. Um, uh, Dr. Prickian, any thoughts on that data? Certainly one pro, one con uh, paper. I don't know how, how does your uh, center um, handle these data and what's your philosophy when you see these patients? Yeah, thank you. Those are uh, excellent papers to, to highlight the, um, the dilemma um, again, just a reminder to everyone, um, if you, um, if you, uh, please feel free to type in some questions and we'll entertain, uh, as many of those as we can. Um, personally at our place, uh, we follow, uh, like you described in the beginning, the high risk stage ones, we recommend surveillance, uh, the very few, uh, particular situations we actually intervene, but the vast majority are on surveillance. So. So to me, the issue of when you're surveilling people and then you compare uh, outcomes is how well you survey them. Uh, so I can see if we don't survey them well and they have a bad relapse, a late relapse, we didn't pick it up in time, uh, you know, they're gonna get more therapy. So we have to, I think we need to be sure that they were surveyed properly uh, because some of the surveillance still can be quite early and we can intervene with surgery, for example. Um, the question I had, Rob, when you were looking at the papers if the vast majority of the relapses are in the retroperitoneum, uh, would we then conclude that all of these would have been uh, cured with an RP, a primary RPLND? Yeah, so that's a great question, Armin. And, and you know, we see this in the adjuvant carboplatin data for seminoma as well. That um, you know, giving chemo does not change where the relapses occur, and so they they are most likely, like in in the case of seminomids. 85, 90% occur in the retroperitoneum for non-seminoma, which is the story we're talking about today. It's usually about 50 to 65% occur in the retroperitoneum. And so, yeah, you do wonder whether one, whether an RPLND upfront would have um, relapsed, uh, would have uh, prevented them from relapsing. I think 
to us, the at Princess Margaret, the counter argument would be, well, you know, why not just survey them? And then if they do relapse in the retroperitoneum, okay, they get an RPL. Like a, we, we're very aggressive with RPL and D for uh, surveillance relapses for non-seminoma. So if they relapse in the retroperitoneum, then you can RPL and D them. If they relapse outside of the retroperitoneum, your RPL and D wouldn't have cured them anyway. And so they'll have to get the appropriate chemotherapy for their, you know, lung disease or whatever the case may be. So yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting um, uh, conundrum um, you know, you, you worry about that one cycle of chemo, uh, you know, is that the real bad actors, is it destined to, to, to under-treat? And then the ones that weren't ever going to get disease anyway, are you over-treating them with one cycle? So it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough dilemma. Are your medical oncologists, yeah. uh, you know, are, what's their take on these data? Are they pro-giving adjuvant bad no. What's their feel? No, their feel is uh, surveillance, and if we surveil them properly, we may even be able to save them the chemotherapy if we can intervene with surgery early. Um, unfortunately, some of the surveillances, you know, the patients don't follow as acutely, um, uh, as strictly as we would like. Uh, so, so surveillance is not trivial, um, and therefore it needs to be really conducted well, especially in the high-risk uh, patients. We do have a question, Rob, uh, from a participant. Uh, has anyone looked at the results of the Sphenoteca trial for relapses and the results of those patients? I don't have an answer to that. Uh, I don't know if you do, uh, Rob. Yeah, I, so uh, so it's a great question. The, the Sphenoteca, um, both in seminoma and non-seminoma, have practiced uh, this so-called risk-adapted approach to clinical stage one, unlike we do at Princess Mary, where everyone gets surveillance. Uh, or, or is, is recommended surveillance. Uh, Swinoteca has said if you have risk factors, then you're offered BEP times one, uh, less so RPLND, more BEP times one. So it's a great question. I do not think that Swinoteca has published uh, a cohort of strictly relapses from BEP times one. Now, they may be in, they may be buried in that, uh, in the Fisher paper of, of uh, 51 relapses. I have to go back and double check that because um, it's accumulated from 18 different centers. But I don't think Swanoteca has an individual um, publication on that, on the, uh, to, to the best of my knowledge. And just maybe one um, more uh, question to you, Rob. The, the, um, the stage one RPL, primary RPLND for high-risk patients, the, the older literature on this, if I remember correctly, Five to eight percent of these recurred in the in the lungs, right, in the chest, mm -hmm. or has that has that number changed yeah. recently? No, I think so. It's not that, every. That's also my. Sorry. So, go ahead. so one can argue, yeah. Okay. Those were oh, good sorry, papers. Sorry, Armin. No, we're, we obviously have a delay where our our voices are getting cut off. Sorry. Finish your thought about RPL and D. No, I was uh, I was I was going to ask you. If you were to, to intervene, meaning surveillance for some reason was not the appropriate choice, and now you, you have to choose between RPLND versus BEP times one, I guess there's pros and cons for both argument. My, my tendency is a little bit like you. I'd like to avoid even the one cycle of chemotherapy so that I don't mess around a bit with the biology, let's say, of the cancer. And 95% of the time, uh, if there was disease, it'll be cured. But occasionally, the relapses are in the lung. And therefore, the patient gets double therapy. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, you know, it's, it, people often ask, you know, well, what do we do uh, when people don't want to go on surveillance? And I, I, I think in ten years of practice, I think we've had one person who chose chemotherapy, and one person 
very early on, like in my second year, first year that chose an RPLND, if I remember. So I barely remember their story. So I don't know that I can say, oh, here's our choice uh, at our institution because we haven't had to, to, to um, I mean, we present the data honestly um, and uh, people choose surveillance. Uh, so I don't know if, if I had a gun to my head, what would my choice be? Probably RPLND to avoid the BEP uh, times one story, but um, it's tough. It's a tough one. You know, I think yeah. I think you know. I just to close my thoughts on on this this topic is that you know a, a lot of people say, well, survey. There are you know people that get lost to follow up on surveillance, and so for those those men, for example, the classic story is someone in the armed forces who's going to ship off overseas for three years, what have you. You know, those guys need adjuvant therapy, and I think. Well, yes, you can lower the relapse rate by giving adjuvant therapy. I think the Fisher paper shows you that it's it's not it doesn't lower it to zero percent. And if they are overseas and they get a BEP times one relapse, they're in a bit of trouble. It's, that that's some bad bad acting potentially bad acting biology there, and they're and they're far away from you. So I don't know that you can always use the argument that oh, if they're not going to follow up for surveillance, you should hit them with BEP times one now. Anyway, it's it's uh, good food for thought. Um, do you have yeah. any other I, I just want comments to make, on that or should we? Yeah, yeah. One more little comment, and that is that, you know, the definition of stage one is really based on good interpretation of the imaging. Um, so, you know, an eight millimeter lymph node in a primary landing zone, some people would say that's not stage one. Uh, so, so it depends what kind of patients we're putting into that stage one pot. Um, and, and I often tell our residents, you know, we should be the ones interpreting these, not just the, the radiologists. I completely agree with you. I think that's a great take home and uh, you know, is that everyone should look at their own imaging because I'm sure you've had the same like very well-intentioned radiologists and sometimes if they don't know the testis cancer disease and where the primary landing points are, they miss these borderline nodes. And I think take home point number two is that don't be afraid to invest a little bit of time, the guidelines say six weeks, to re-image them. If there's a borderline node and you're worried about it, re-image them because a third of them will turn into stage twos and then your decision is made for you. That that gentleman needs proper metastatic therapy, whether it's an RPLND or chemotherapy, and that uh, uh, times three or four. So that, that's a really good good point, Armin. Anything else, or should we move to robot? Nope. Let's move on. Okay. So let me toggle back here. So we'll switch gears to robot. This won't be quite as long a discussion because I'm not sure that this topic has as broad applicability, uh, at least uh, certainly in Canada. Um, and and the discussion of robotic carpality is well, all robotic discussions seem to be mired in controversy. Um, and certainly robotic carpality is no stranger to that. And you can you don't have to be into the literature to think of the potential benefits of a robotic RPLND. It's obviously the opens a very morbid surgery, better cosmesis, less blood loss, less pain, shorter hospital stay, faster recovery, return to work, and a lower risk of incisional hernia. And for the open RPLND, um, that's not something to completely disre disregard. I, I think the hernia rate is actually quite high. And if you look closely enough at your CT scans post-op, you know, I'd say a third of them have some sort of weakness in their ventral abdominal wall. And sometimes it could be quite symptomatic. The arguments again, that have been levied against the robot, it's, they would say it's oncologically inferior. There are longer OR times. There's obviously the capital cost plus the purchase cost of the robot, disposable cost for each case. And then the argument is that, well, if we open the floodgates for robotic RPLND, are we going to move the RPLND surgeries from the domain of the, the sort of urologic oncologist who's very experienced with high volume testis cancer to 
uh, surgeons who have a robot and know how to use the robot? And will there be um, potentially a decrement of quality of surgery by opening the floodgates uh, for robotic surgery? So to fuel the controversy, to add more to the controversy, there have been some papers published. So this was a, a group at Indiana published this series of five patients post-robotic RPLND that had very bizarre recurrences. So in-field, pericolic, perineal carcinomatosis, super highlight, like very arguably strange stuff that you see after an RPLND. And that prompted a platinum editorial in European urology that said, well, uh, I don't know that that everything you say is true in the sense that we have to look at the denominator. Yes, you can cherry pick five cases, but let's look at all of the cases, both open and robotic, and look at the number of these bizarre recurrences. And we, unbeknownst, we, we didn't know they had a platinum editorial. We wrote a letter to the editor saying a very similar thing is that, well, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's continue to study this because we certainly see our fair share of sort of bizarre relapses referred to us from open RPLND. So it's not exclusively to the surgical technique. They, of course, of course, wrote back to us. Dr. Ritchie got in on the game uh, in, in the Journal of Urology and, and, and sort of sided with the Indiana group about the, the cautionary tale of the robotic RPLND. And then, of course, Twitter. If you ever want to find controversy, go to Twitter. And there's been several Twitter rants against robot. And I've just put one here. We're not going to read it. But this robotic RPLND generates a lot of this vitriolic uh, emotion, it seems. And so I, we just thought tonight we'd talk about two papers. There have been a number of papers published on this, but in the last year and a half, there's been two papers, one in European urology focus, one in European urology oncology. The left on your screen is primary, the right on your screen is post-chemo, and we're not going to spend too much time. Um, on the left side of the screen, 49 patients, primary IPLND, just less than half had, had truly bilateral dissections, which is how we practice, and Armin, I want to hear in a minute um, your, how you normally do primary IPLNDs. Median follow-up was short, admittedly 15 months. Very impressive blood loss, length of stay. Um, like a lot of the primary RPLND series, we, we see that only less than half actually had retroperitoneal disease. And so that speaks to the bigger picture question of, you know, why are you doing the RPLND in the first place? But let's put that aside for a minute. Um, within that 43%, 8% ultimately relapsed. And, and that is on par. That is on par with open primary RPLND series. So I think that these are favorable signals here that the complications are not bad. I do draw your attention to, to a ureteral injury and a chyla society's uh, requiring embolization. So look, we get, we get these in open too, uh, but maybe not in, in you know, a nice clean primary RPLND template. So it's a, a little bit uh, concerning there. Post-chemo side, 30 robotic uh, post-chemo RPLNDs, and this group compared to 63 opens, but I do want to point out that, um, you know, there's clearly selection bias here. The, the robotic subgroup had way lower stage, better IGCCCG, smaller masses, and they were much more often unilateral dissection, but you can't deny the, the blood loss was dramatically better, the length of stay was dramatically better, and they had a sort of similar, whether it's 8% in the primary, 10% in the post-chemo, we see what I would argue is on par oncologic control in these small series with, with short follow-up and again, uh, relatively minimal complications. So some more data, the data is building. Um, let me toggle back so I can see Armin. I mean, what are, what are your, your takes on, what is your take on this robotic space? Yeah, so I, I, I was just saying that uh, I kind of see this as, um, as you know, any new technique or uh, any new uh, method or device in surgery in general. Um, you know, as long as we adhere to the principles and the objectives, then 
we should encourage people to try and develop them, right? Because otherwise we stagnate. Uh, it's true that an RPLND is a bit tricky, um, but you know there are excellent surgeons out there, and if 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 you know as long as they follow again the principles, then I don't see why uh, one day it would not be uh, you know the way to go. Um, I think the problem was uh, early on. Uh, people did it to show that it can be done um, as as the indicator of success, not, you know, uh, complication rate, uh, relapse rate, uh, and so forth. Uh, would would I undertake this? No, I would not. I'm not a skilled robotic surgeon um, in the retroperitoneum, but I can see, you know, the future. Um, uh, this being this as as the, as the technique and the technology improves. I see this uh, eventually becoming part of the um, methodology, uh, and and as we decrease morbidity, then when it comes time to the argument, do we do chemo or do we do surgery? Uh, you know, it may it may help with that decision making. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, those are very the, good points. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I think I, I think your point about when we study this. You know, you need to have a large enough pool of patients who have met metastases in their lymph nodes uh, to be able to um, determine the oncologic uh, success rate. You know, if all we do is operate on people with negative nodes, we're never going to learn um, if yeah. indeed what's the relapse rate, what's the non-oncologic cure rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't want to talk too long because it's I don't know how relevant is to the rest of Canada, but we, we exactly what you said when we embarked on starting this at Princess Margaret, we said we will adhere exactly to the principles that we've always adhered to both clinical decision making for who should get an RPLND. And then once you're in the OR, the exact same template and moves and nerve sparing versus not like we would replicate to the extent possible, um, the open RPLND. And if we couldn't do that, or if at any point we found we were harming people, we I always said I would stop because uh, because we have a tried, tested, and true maneuver with very good survival in testis cancer, and so you don't want to mess with that. And to date, and we probably we we published when we were at 27, and now we're at 45, 47. I actually did two this week, or tomorrow will be my second one this week. So we're we're sort of ramping up. We haven't seen any adverse signals. Knock on knock on wood. So. We're going to keep going. They, they bounce out of the hospital in a day. It's, it's pretty miraculous. I still get scared when I say goodbye to them the next day, but it's, it's working. So, um, so far, so good. Um, anyway, any other Great. thoughts on robots? I, uh, shall we, shall we move on? No, I agree with you. I think it's, um, we'll have probably a few centers to try it and then, uh, and then, you know, the trainees will pick it up eventually once it becomes more prevalent. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the okay, one point so one point you did make. Sorry, the one point you did stress on, you know, what we don't want is everyone to start do it because they can do it, um, and 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 to make sure we don't separate the technique from managing the patient and the cancer. Yeah, no, I think that is a good point, and um, you know, I, I believe, and and sorry, we keep saying we're going to move on, but uh, you know, if you get into the tumor. If you rupture a cystic teratoma, if you if you uh, violate a plane on an abdominal carcinoma, whether it's robot or open, that thing implants. And uh, you know, I'm sure you've yeah. inherited a couple of your practice from elsewhere. And 
I have as, as well. And um, I think whether it's robot or open, uh, bad things come of that. And so if you can't execute the perfect RPLND surgery with the robot, then you, you probably shouldn't be trying it. And I think I, I think that's that is an important message. So thanks for bringing there is that a um, yep. There is a question for you, Araba. What what's your selection criteria? Um, so uh, maybe you can quickly answer that one, and then we can move on. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll answer it quickly. So I'm the bottom line is I'm very selective. I do way still do way more and enjoy doing way more opens than robots. Uh, so we've restricted to primary stage 2a and very small 2b so like up to say three centimeters uh, and then post chemo sort of the equivalent of 2a or 2b small 2b's without having undergone a massive cytoreduction with chemo so i don't want to get into the whole desmoplastic thing i actually like the growing teratoma piece as long as it's not too big because those planes are actually pretty easy to get around uh, but i don't want to get into that big desmoplastic post-chemo reaction. So I'm very, very picky post-chemo and pretty picky in the primary setting. Thank you. Okay, let's fire on. So I think you'll uh, take over, Armin, and I can advance slides for you. Yeah. And uh, so, okay. so go ahead. Okay, thank you. So um, the next paper um, discusses adjuvant chemotherapy with uh, etoposide and platinum. So not BEP, but EP. Um, for patients with um, pathologic stage two and non-seminoma, meaning these patients have undergone an RPLND and have, were found to have nodal disease. And uh, the question is, you know, there's always a debate, do we give two cycles or do we observe them? Uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and you've got a photo there of, of several alumni, uh, and you'll see uh, Rob and myself in that picture and Dr. Scheinfeld, who probably has the largest experience uh, one of the largest experiences in the world for, for this type of uh, disease. And so their approach has been uh, to use, to drop the bleomycin and use EP as much as possible. And so they've used EP in this setting. And so they report on their, on their results. Uh, next slide. So it's 156 patients. Uh, all of them had an RPLND. Uh, so we have pathologic staging. So, you know, the, the bulk of it are, are PN2 uh, so positive lymph nodes uh, in the retroperitoneum, a few of them. Uh, and they all get two cycles of EP and a decent uh, median follow-up of nine years. Next slide. And so, you know, not surprisingly, um, uh, the relapse rate is very, very low. 1.3%, uh, essentially two patients. Um, and then those patients, when they were treated with salvage chemotherapy, they've been free from disease. Uh, they report acceptable toxicity with two cycles of EP, again, just EP, not BEP. And they report a 10-year disease-specific survival of 100%. And they conclude that uh, EP times two after primary RPLND for patients with node-positive disease is, is highly effective and that the bleomycin is not needed. And this particular point can be debated. Uh, various centers, would um, some would prefer BEP and other prefer EP. And again, in a disease where, uh, you know, mortality is low, survival very high, it's always nice to see if we can minimize morbidity and is it safe to drop the bleomycin? And this paper seems to uh, say so. Um, I think that's the last slide on this particular paper. Um, next slide. And then the next paper, which uh, we can discuss after these two combined, 
uh, discusses um, surveillance after uh, complete response for patients with post-chemotherapy post uh, non-seminoma. This comes from the UHN and um, Rob Hamilton uh, is the lead of the team that studied this. Next slide. So most, most places uh, around the world, uh, in a patient who had uh, retroperitoneal uh, uh, or stage three um, a disease who get chemotherapy, and when there's a complete response, uh, and complete response defined as uh, anything less than one centimeter on imaging, uh, most places would observe these patients, but some feel that uh, it's safer to proceed with uh, resection uh, because there's a small risk of uh, missing uh, either a teratoma or a viable cancer in a patient who has a complete response. So uh, it's always nice to see evid uh, more evidence added to the literature on patients who are being surveyed uh, to see what is the true rate of a relapse in someone who has a CR. So UHN has a, has a, a long uh, history here of uh, managing patients with testicular cancer. So this is a study uh, where the cohort is based on uh, a little over 1,400 patients uh, beginning in the 80s. Um, and there's 49% uh, of them were stage two in this particular study and 27 stage three. And they had 191 patients who had a, essentially a complete response. So that's the denominator that uh, they studied and a, quite a decent follow-up of 81 months. You would anticipate that if there was any disease left behind, that it would show itself within that uh, within that time frame. One could argue teratomas maybe take a bit longer, uh, but uh, certainly if you miss cancer, it should have shown itself within that time period. So in terms of results, if we go to the next slide, um, so uh, and, the, and these were provided by Rob. Uh, so you see, you've got a 92% um, uh, no relapse rate, which is uh, uh, very high. Um, there were 8.4% relapse, relapses, and uh, nine of these were considered to be delayed. So they had essentially a delayed RPLND. So the RPLND was able to salvage them. Uh, so again, these are patients who already had chemotherapy. Um, uh, so nine of them needed a, a eventual RPLND, and four or 2% died of testicular cancer. So the conclusion was that surveillance is safe and effective following a complete response after chemo. And the proponents of an RPLND uh, for a patient with a CR um, would have to demonstrate that had they done an RPLND, that the death rate from testis cancer would be higher than what we see here, and the relapse rate would be higher than what we see here. So I'm, I'm curious to, to hear what uh, Rob has to say um, as he was putting the data for this paper together. You know, what did he find in the literature to compare to? Yeah, uh, let me toggle back so I can see it. Uh, uh, thanks, uh, Armin. That was that was great. Um, yeah. So you want you want to talk um, uh, CR surveillance? Yeah, first? let's do. We can, we can do that. Um, yes. Yeah. So that you know, obviously, we were not the first by all by any means to show those type of data. That was sort of guideline concordant practice when we published this uh, this last year. Um, but that is now the largest series in the literature that, that shows um, that signal. And we showed 8%. The studies have been as low as 5%, as high as 9% relapse. So they all kind of have relapse in that same thing. And I think um, your last point that you made was the best, which is, uh, you know, had you intervened, would you have prevented those four deaths? And so I have looked very carefully at those four deaths and they're in the paper, you can look at them. We've outlined all their details and for sure, 
three of them, I don't think we would have, had we done an RPL and D right away, we would not have prevented them. So for example, one had a brain met relapse, I think it was four or six months after chemo. So you can't convince me that doing an RPL and D at say, three, you know, two, three months post chemo would have prevented a, a brain met. Several others had very rapid sort of liver, lung, sort of multivisceral um, relapse pattern and, and uh, sometimes the retroperitoneum was involved, sometimes it wasn't, and so it's hard to believe that doing an RPLND would have uh, prevented those patients from relapsing. And, and, you know, again, the majority, so more than half, you were able to salvage with a delayed RPLND. So as long as you watch them, uh, we felt that that was a prudent philosophy. I, I assume that's how, how you guys practice at your place? Yes. Yes, we, uh, we observe. Um, and, and, you know, the, the one centimeter cutoff, it's hard to believe that that is, you know, black and white. Um, so, you know, there are, there is the occasional 1.2, 1.3 centimeter patient who had a 10 centimeter mass to begin with that we may watch, um, and, and, and the residents get stuck and, you know, it's a bigger than one centimeter. We have to remove it. Uh, so as long as we monitor them closely, I, I agree with you. I think they can still be salvaged with surgery. Um, so I don't see the urgency to operate on someone, even if it's, you know, 12 millimeter mass. Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, uh, I'll just check the, uh, questions here, uh, but let me ask you one, one more. Um, uh, oh yeah, no, I was going to say, so I completely agree with your last point. And the fact, you know, if you have someone that had 10 centimeter and now you see them at say their six week, four week post chemo scan and it's two centimeters. I completely agree. Watch them and let them see where they nadir because that two centimeter mass may become a 1.3 centimeter mass. Watch them again and it may become a 0.9 centimeter mass. And now they're a CR and you would feel comfortable uh, watching them. So let me just see what uh, um, the questions are here. Uh, so I thought the historic data from MSK is that justification for post chemo RPLD was the 23% rate of either tumor or teratoma. Do you know if they're doing more surveillance now? Or does everyone still get a PCRPLND there? I don't know. I remember you have you been in, you know, I, I was last there in 2012 and they were still very pro PCRPLND for any sort of radiographically detectable residual disease. If it was completely nothing, they wouldn't go in. But if there was something, they would go. I don't know how, what's your understanding currently? Yeah. I mean, uh, having spoken to Dr. Scheinfeld, um, on this topic uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the philosophy is the same. And and they, they tend to be, you know, uh, even one patient relapse is too much. And because they believe in their hands, the surgery is not morbid, it's, 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 it's fun. You know, that's their approach. Um, um, so it's a bit uh, extreme on the scale of, uh, let's say, uh, where others fall. Um, so, but, but they're still, they're, they still follow that philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. I think the last time I, I think, I guess, I think I even debated Dr. Scheinfeld at CUA. Maybe that was like six years ago now, if I remember, it's coming back to me. And, and he has this, you know, uh, um, um, you know, tagline, you have to control the retroperitoneum. And I think any surgeon who deals with testis cancer understands that's true. But again, when all I can say is when I look at the data, I feel like for those few that relapsed and died, my intervention on the retroperitoneum would not have 
save them from dying. I think they were destined to die. So that looking at our own data taught me that, you know, as long as you watch them and watch them carefully and watch them for a long time. That was the other thing I learned from the data was there were some guys that relapsed at 15 months from, and sorry, 15 years, I should say, from ending their chemo. And so I think if you're going to watch a CR, you have to be prepared to watch them for a long time. Uh, and then the question was, uh, where, where are tumor markers involved in surveillance? Well, we, and uh, Dr. Perea, you can comment too. I, we, we, every time we see them, we check tumor markers. And so initially that's very frequently, every two to three months in the first year, but then we, we stretch it out. I assume the same for you, Armin? Yeah, pretty much the same. Uh, although I think your point about uh, surveilling them properly means, you know, one advantage we hear about the RPLND is that we can stop scanning them or at least scanning their abdomen. Uh, I think you made a good point that if we're going to watch them, we have to keep scanning them regularly and for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, I don't know, do you want to, any closing thoughts on the adjuvant nope. EP times two after RPLND, or do you want to, because I want to make sure we get to your uh, survivorship. Piece. Yeah, I think we should, we should um, go on. We've got 20 more minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, perfect. So I'll let you uh, carry on there. Hopefully okay, you can so see those slides. Yeah, thank you. So um, I, I thought, uh, you know, these were two interesting papers that, um, that Rob, you chose uh, that I think are very uh, relevant. Um, and and we, we probably felt this was true, but now we start to see actually some hard data. So um, I think it's important that we, we sensitize as many people as possible. So this first study is um, testicular cancer uh, and causes of death um, not related to, testi to, to testicular cancer. Um, so causes of death and mortality rates, um, it's a population-based study, uh, which is quite revealing actually in terms of um, when patients die, what do they die of? Next slide. So this is um, a registry-based uh, study uh, combining death registry and a cancer registry from Norway. Um, uh, when I looked into it, it it's like, like one of the m much better annotated, um, uh, verified uh, registries of causes of death uh, and cancer diagnosis. So it's it's quite reliable in terms of information. Uh, they looked at five, over 5,700 patients with testicular cancer uh, beginning in 1980 with almost a 20-year follow-up, and they looked to see, you know, what are the what are the causes of death in people when they do die. Um, so surprisingly to me, actually, 12% 12 12 of patients had a non-cancer related death. And remember, these are young people to begin with. Um, so the death rate shouldn't, shouldn't be that high uh, once they're cured of their testis cancer. And so in terms of relative increase, it's a 23% relative increase in non-testis cancer deaths. Uh, so essentially the excess mortality. And, and when they, and the graph kind of shows you a little bit uh, what their treatments were uh, for their testicular cancer. And you can clearly see that if a patient had platinum-based chemotherapy or platinum-based chemotherapy and radiation, um, the risk of death um, from non-testis non cancer death uh, increases compared to if they had surgery only, which let's say maybe the control group, um, if, if you, if you want to look at it that way. So to me, I, although I, I had an idea this was true, here we actually see some, some, some numbers, uh, which to me is, is quite scary. Uh, next slide. Uh, then when they looked into you know, what the causes of death were, um, 
secondary malignancy was the most common cause of non-cancer death. Um, there was an interesting uh, um, nugget of information in there that there was there seemed to be a higher rate of suicide in patients who had chemotherapy, um, which talks about the mental health uh, issues of patients who have testicular cancer and as well coupled with the need for chemotherapy, which we'll talk about in the next paper. And uh, there was a direct relationship with the number of chemotherapy or platinum-based chemotherapy cycles. So, so I guess the more platinum uh, chemo the patient receives, the added effect on downstream secondary malignancy. And, and we know this from childhood cancers already. Uh, but again, this, this brings it a little bit more um, um, data-driven so that when we do have discussions with patients, we now have some data that we can use uh, to guide the discussion. And, and again, surgery in and of itself, by itself, did not seem to have any excess mortality. Um, uh, so it, it serves as a, as a control group that we can compare to. Um, so I thought that was a, a quite an illuminating paper. The next paper um, talks about uh, mental health, something that we don't uh, pay too much attention to. Uh, uh, you know, as oncologists, we tend to see these young people with uh, testicular cancer, uh, they have a high cure rate, uh, they can tolerate uh, whether it's chemo, surgery, uh, they, they, they've quite, they do quite well through it. And then we kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're, we pat our backs, we pat our backs that we've cured them, uh, yet we leave them with some scars. Um, and, and, and a lot of times it's, it's emotional or mental scars. So this was a, a nice paper from uh, uh, the group in Kingston that looked at um, long-term mental health service utilization. So I guess as a surrogate for mental health problems uh, across Ontario for patients with testicular cancer. Next slide. So over a 10 year period, uh, they had 2,600 cases uh, and they used 13,000 controls um, to, um, to compare to, and they looked at mental health service use. So I guess this is sort of administrative uh, billing type uh, data um, uh, to sort of make the indirect um, uh, conclusion that uh, uh, there, there are mental health uh, problems in, in these patients because they consulted for some of these services. Um, so over time, you can see there, time for morchiectomy uh, cases versus controls, there is a cumulative increase. So what's interesting in this paper is that it's not just a one-time um, event around the testicular cancer diagnosis, but it seems to increase over time as the years go by which says something about the survivorship needs of these, of these uh, young men. Uh, so peri-treatment, the relative risk was 2.4, and then post-treatment up to 12 years later. Uh, and again, when I saw this, I was, I was quite surprised uh, that there is a 1.3 increase in relative risk of mental health service utilization. Now, we don't know diagnoses. We don't know, you know, uh, the, uh, the, you know how heavy these mental health issues were. But there is a signal there that there, there is some need uh, and that we need to pay more attention to. Um, I think, is that the last slide on this uh, paper? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, Robert, yeah. what do you think? You see a lot of these, you see a lot of these men uh, or young adults. Um, what's your experience? Yeah, uh, and very well presented, Armin, and I think you, you, you touched on it. And um, it's interesting, I find that of course, the initial shock and diagnosis, you know, everyone has a similar set of emotions, whether you're a 65-year-old prostate cancer patient or a, uh, you know, 22-year-old testis cancer patient, it's a similar interaction. 
where I see it more, and I don't know, I'm curious, Armin, if you do too, but it's almost like one year and two years after you've cured them, uh, you know, they come in to get their marker checks and everything's great. And if you stay in the room for an extra 10 seconds and you look them in the eyes and say, how are you really doing? Boom, they break down and they say, you know what? I broke up with my girlfriend. Like, I don't talk to my parents anymore. I lost my job. Like, there, there is a lot of um, uh, po almost post-traumatic type stress you know any every time they come to the cancer center they they, they almost can't even come through the door like there, there's a lot of i found very different set of emotions than you have for most of your other cancer patients who are, who are older and whether that's age or maturity or when you when you're older you you face your own mortality more commonly in your thoughts whereas when you're 22 you don't think about your own mortality and and it's like having a sledgehammer on your uh, understandably on your psyche at that time. So I'm curious, Armin, do you have, um, uh, you know, a team or a, psych a psychologist or a, a psychosocial oncology team that you refer to routinely, or how do you handle these? So uh, at our place, we do have a, a young adult focused psychosocial oncology uh, service, psychologist, nurse, uh, nurse um, pivot nurse, we call them. Um, however, uh, we don't routinely send um, uh, the, the, the boys or the men there. We rely, and, and unfortunately, I think, um, we rely or we wait until they ask for help, which is, uh, as you just pointed out, um, if your visits are short, um, you know, it's not going to come to the forefront. So I don't think we're as proactive as we could be uh, to identify which uh, young adults or young men need some additional support before three, four years later, you know, their lives are, are, are affected. Now, whether the intervention can prevent a future, you know, breakup or something, it needs to be, needs to be shown. But I think there's enough literature in other young adult cancers, whether in women or men, um, that, that, that kind of service, providing that kind of service and identifying the at-risk person early helps. Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree. Um, there's one question we'll get to here uh, in the non-testis cancer-related death paper. So the first paper you talked about was there any stratification based on seminoma versus non-seminoma in those uh, associations between surgery only versus radiation versus chemo versus the combo of of both? No, so. The non-cancer, the non-testis cancer death rates did not vary by diagnosis of germ cell cancer, but only by treatment. So yes, a seminoma that needed radiation, for example, uh, versus a seminoma that was just surveyed, there's there's going to be a difference, but not a seminoma versus a non-seminoma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think, I mean, this is the paper we we picked tonight, but increasingly there are series, you know, Lois Travis has a series of papers from the United States, from the platinum study showing basically exactly the same thing. And, and this is a, a building evidentiary base to say that the more treatment you give for these guys, the worse it is. And I, I think there's, there's two take-homes from, from these types of data. One is that in the moment when you're deciding what treatment to give that person, you have to think about these data. If there is a regional option that doesn't involve chemotherapy, so for example, RPLND, and you think you can get away with it safely, then, you know, pick that regional option because you know that years later you may influence their non-testis cancer mortality. And then the second point is, whatever decision you made 10 years ago, make sure you educate those patients about 
what to watch for and, and tell their GPs what to screen for for other cancers and cardiovascular disease and, uh, and all the other aspects of survivorship. So I think there's two pieces that come out of the out of these papers. Uh, I don't know, Armin, what, what are your thoughts? No, I think you uh, you hit the nail on the head. And and again, not just for testicular cancer, but you know, we're, we have, there's more and more survivors. Um, uh, you know, our treatments are getting better, people live longer. So, so getting the family physician uh, involved with cancer care is going to be extremely important. We can't have all the patients monitored in the cancer centers. So, so this is a growing need, uh, you know, across all of oncology, not just testicular cancer. There was a, a question, or, or even more of a comment, actually, in the in the, in the uh, Q and A. Uh, we always remember to send young men for sperm banking, and I think I'm, I'm glad to actually hear that because I that's not always the case. Well, at least the referrals that come to me, but I'm glad that that you do. Should that same sort of knee jerk reaction be applied to a psychosocial or psychiatric uh, evaluation or referral? What do you think about that, Armin? Well, it would be we don't have enough of the services. Uh, for a root for it to be knee-jerk or routine but we need to be proactive in trying to identify and sometimes just ask speaking to the partner of the patient you know how's he doing uh you know is, are things okay at work and so forth can can raise the signals and then you can uh choose which patient needs those early referrals mm -hmm. yeah no, we only I, have a few minutes left rob maybe you want to go to the next uh, section Sure, and I can go through this fast as I want to make sure we leave a little bit of time for sort of general whatever anybody asks. So I, I can cover this in a, in, a, in a minute. This is future looking stuff, and so we don't have to delve into too much detail. Uh, microRNA, this is one slide. Just remember, it's the part of the genome that doesn't get translated into protein. So it interacts with other messenger RNA that does get translated into protein. And so by doing that, it can these microRNA can serve as oncogenes, they can serve as tumor suppressor genes. And this one in particular, 371A3P, seems to be highly sensitive and specific for testis cancer. So there's a lot of promise about whether this uh, may be a, a marker for germ cell tumor going forward. And in 20 seconds, I'll just say that people have looked at it in the predicting histology at RPLND. And Aditya Bergordi's group from UT Southwestern did it. And he showed that 371A3P was able to, like all the patients with viable, unfortunately, none of the patients with teratoma and one of the patients with a benign RPLND actually had a, had a false positive. So it's great, but not perfect. And this is our paper on the right. We, we tried to look at this in the stage one setting and asked the question, could the post-orchiectomy microRNA predict who was going to relapse and who was not? And the answer is unfortunately not. So you can see this box whisker plot here, the relapsers in red, the non-relapsers in blue, absolutely no difference at that post-orchiectomy time point, sadly, I wish, I was hoping it was going to be positive, but we, what we did find was that as the time course in a given patient approached the time to relapse, the microRNA trended upwards. And so putting these two papers together, we sort of concluded that it looks like, we'll see what the future holds, but 371 probably isn't sensitive enough immediately post-ORC to predict what's going to happen in the future. But maybe if you monitor it, it's an earlier indicator for relapse, and you could maybe treat more of them with RPLND than waiting for them to be big relapses and going to chemo. I think I'll just skip the post-chemo story uh, for, for uh, just for sake of time, because I do want to get to seminoma and we'll close on seminoma. I wasn't going to put this in, but the AUA news came out last week with this on the cover, retroperitoneal node dissection for early stage two seminoma, the new standard of care. And I nearly fell off my chair. And in fact, there was a tweet 
yesterday that sort of you know got a lot of likes and whatever where someone was saying this absolutely is the new standard of care i think and my take home is i think we have to be careful we haven't even seen the papers published yet so as a reminder traditionally we never talked about rplnd for seminoma radiation was the regional modality of choice and uh, rplnd is limited even in post chemo stem because it's so hard all this desmoplastic reaction nobody likes to do them and so these are the two studies and they've been presented in abstract form only one from the u.s one from germany the bottom line is the the u.s one showed an 18 percent relapse rate the german one showed a 20 percent relapse rate and at first you may say well that's not bad that means that you know 80 percent of people avoided ever seeing chemo at least for now in the two years of follow-up they've reported i think you have to be uh, un, um, aware that you know your comparator is probably radiation where in this population you're probably looking at 10% or less relapse rate and so it might not be as good as radiation but maybe it's a better toxicity profile given all the things that that we talked about so Armin you want any any sort of thoughts on that I realize we're running very close to the end here well um, so I first of all I agree with you that um, uh, you know we have to temper our enthusiasm um, uh, number one. Number two, uh, as if we start to see more papers of long-term toxicity of radiation to the retroperitoneum, uh, you know, then the interest for uh, surgery uh, and uh, seminoma will increase. Um, so, so I agree with you. Right now, I think semino uh, for seminomas, radiation is safe, effective, and we can avoid a big operation. But if more data comes out 20 years later, there's a, you know, a 5% uh, rate of retroperitoneal cancer. Well, um, you know, I think the question on seminoma surgery, especially if someone's going to do it robotic, <laughs> then uh, I can see how, uh, I can see how uh, it, it'll come to the forefront. I agree yeah. with you. It's not ready for, it's not the standard yet. Yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, I agree with everything you said. It's interesting. We we wanted to participate in the SEMS trial, but uh, they were, um, you know, the, the radiation, our multidisciplinary clinic team discussed it extensively. And they said, well, we, we would be uh, willing if we did a robotic approach for these patients, but to substitute radiation with a gigantic cut down the middle, open RPLND, our group just wasn't comfortable with that. And so we, we went to the SEMS trial and said, you know, we want to participate, but it's going to be with robotic RPLND. And they said, we don't want to mix. I understand for their trial. They want to be pure in their trial. I totally understand. But they didn't want any robotic uh, RPLNDs for their seminomas in the SEMS trial. So we, we you know, didn't participate in that. But listen, I would love it if, if uh, you know, we seminoma was proven that could be controlled with RPLND. I think uh, I'm in favor of doing more surgery in these these men as long as we prove it. And I just want to see I want to see the data in paper form, a nice academic discussion about it, and then I'd be happy to uh, to do more RPLNDs. I'm sure you would be too. I agree. Uh, and we have so I think literally uh, one minute left. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll toss back over to you, Armin. Yeah, so I was just going to um, conclude. First, I want to thank you, Rob, uh, for. Uh, uh, selecting the uh, the important publications, uh, I think we had a nice discussion. We had uh, some level of participation from the participants. So, uh, in terms of conclusions, um, so uh, you know, I, th I think you all um, concluded uh, what we showed you from the papers. And again, there's not very there's very few practice changing papers uh, in testis cancer, as Rob mentioned. 
Uh, I think we saw some publications that confirmed a lot of our, uh, our, our, our guideline approaches at the moment. There's some new things coming. Um, and um, hopefully we'll see uh, a lot more um, interest and research in testicular cancer. I always tell the residents, it's a cancer that the cure rate is so high, we should be studying it more, not studying it less, because we need to find out why we can cure these people so well and apply it to other cancers. So on that note, uh, again, thank you, Rob. Thanks uh, to the CUA. Uh, just remind everyone that, that there'll be a link um, for a webinar evaluation. This link will be uh, sent to you uh, by email shortly. So please provide your uh, feedback and then you'll get your certificate of participation. It'll be included in the email uh, that you'll receive. Thanks very much. So on that note, thank you. Good evening, everyone. Have a good night.